0: Yeah, Soza, thanks for challenging us um, with, the, uh, with the card. Uh, hopefully one of us will be able to jump out and uh, sponsor a child. Um, ben, thanks for leading us in prayer of confession this morning. There's something important for us to learn to confess together. Um, and also, one other thing, one of the things that Soza's doing throughout the season of Lent that it would be a good practice for us to get into as well is they're going to be reading through the book of John. And so if any of you are interested in, you know, what's something I could pick up? Lent, a lot of times we think about giving things up, and that's great. That's a fun practice. My family was working through this week what things we're going to give up to increase our bandwidth. Uh, But sometimes it's also what things are we going to begin to do? And so Sozo has decided to read through John, and they're going to be talking through that. But I want to encourage you as well, read through the book of John um, during the season of Lent. See what Jesus is up to. Um, so one of my one of my professors and a friend of mine, his name's A.J. Sobota. Uh, he said this. He said God's will is like Lewis and Clark going across America to find the other side of the country. They didn't go with the map. They made a map as they went. In fact, when you look at their maps as they went, you can tell that they had absolutely no idea whatsoever where they were going most of the time. They just went. And it was only after they got back from their journey that they figured out what the map should look like. The spirit is in, in the book of Acts is very much at work the way Lewis and Clark thought about getting across and building this map as they went. Um, friends, when we meet Jesus, we don't get a map that tells us how everything's going to work out. It's much of us to our disappointment. Um, but we see the big story of God's map, and the big story is that life begins in the presence of God, sin enters, it screws everything up, breaks so many things, and it ends back in the presence of God, fully restored and healed. And we see the story of Scripture that gives us the grand narrative, and we fit somewhere in the middle of all of that. Um, we, we understand that the bigness of this story uh, is great in its spectrum, it's cosmic It impacts everything that we see, not just one or two people or individuals, not just one family, not just one nation, but it's cosmic in its understanding and in its reach. And so we make up the map with the Spirit as we go. And this is how the church in Acts is operating. Uh, And and this morning, we're about halfway through, a little more than halfway through the book of Acts. And let me just recap for a few minutes. So Luke... um, the writer of Luke and Acts originally writes Luke-Acts as one thing that travels together. However, it's in two different scrolls because it's so vast. It's a big story. And so if Luke is the, is the book about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Acts is the book about the Spirit and the church, part one and part two. Um, Acts 1.8, we have to understand, this is the preface of the book of Acts. And it's really important that we get this in our heads eight, uh, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Ju- Judea and all Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And so as the church began, uh, like one of our goals this year uh, as a church, we want to see more kingdom mischief happen. The Spirit is causing all kinds of mischief within the surrounding area of Jerusalem. People are getting saved. People are are being healed. Demons are being cast out. People are selling what they have to give to others. Uh, Rich and poor, class divisions are beginning to become blurred. And God is building his and, and revealing his kingdom to a group of people, specifically to a group of Jews. It is a beautiful mess. And so what we understand is up until then, up until Acts chapter 8, all it's, it's very Jerusalem-centric. The story of Acts is very much centered around Jerusalem, and all roads are leading to Jerusalem. But in Acts 8, Stephen is stoned to death, and the church begins to scatter. And with that, more and more people outside of the walls of Jerusalem begin to hear the story of God, and they begin to respond to the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, came, lived, was crucified, dead, buried, rose again from the dead, and when we place our faith in him we begin to we have life and we have life everlasting and it changes everything as we see it changing everything within the early church and in acts 11 something radically cosmically huge happens peter receives a vision of a blanket Some of you are like, wow, that doesn't sound really radically, awesomely huge. But it is huge because in this blanket, it's this vision of this blanket being lowered with all these different animals. And and this voice tells Peter, Peter, I want you to rise and eat. He's like, well, Lord, I can't do that because a lot of those animals on there are unclean. And you know me. I'm a good Jew. I'm not going to eat that thing. So Jesus does it again. This this vision comes again. and, And what happens is in that moment, God is revealing that, hey, my grace... You know that, that grace that sank your ship? That grace I'm spreading out across the world. There is no boundaries to where my grace will go. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He's a Roman guy. He presents the gospel. These guys get saved. They fall to the ground because the spirit comes on. They start speaking in tongues and all kinds of cool stuff starts happening. And here we see the bigness of the gospel move outside of Jerusalem and, it's, and Judea, and it begins to reach Gentiles. This is, cos- this is huge. It's, it's outside of the family in which everyone was kind of thinking, this, this blessing, this gospel that we have, we are recipients of it, and look at it, it's so beautiful, and we all look the same, we all think the same, we all talk the same, and then God screws it all up by opening up to a bunch of Gentiles. He opens the story, the bigness of the story, to weird people. Like me, and you. But this is cosmic in its understanding because what we understand is that God's family is expanding and it's ever to be expanding. And uh, there's this beautiful line in in the Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe. It talks about um, Aslan knowing a much deeper magic. And the deeper magic of the story is that when we go way back into the beginning of Scripture, we see this promise to Abraham from God saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that, that it's not just stuck into one family, one people, but it now spreads out into the entirety of the world, that it knows no language barrier, it knows no cultural barrier, it just begins to explode. And so we see that chapters 13 and 14 are the story of Paul and Barnabas' first, Barnabas's first missionary journey. And amazing things are happening on this journey. Both Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas, are, they're getting beat up, they're getting kicked out. It's a ruckus. And the Holy Spirit, I think, is laughing and dancing in the midst of the chaos, but he is bringing order and salvation to people that were far from God. woo This is good, okay? This is really good stuff. And then we get to chapter 15. We have to understand, chapter 15 is a pivotal point within the book of Acts. Um, Some scholars say this is the pivotal point in the book of Acts because it changes the direction of the church. And so I'm going to have my friend Liz, she's going to come and read to us. If you guys have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll pull that out of your way.
1: having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they were. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath,
0: This is God's Word. And so what we see is that this story has its roots back to Peter and his vision. And again, as we're talking about, this is a cosmic event for the Gentiles to begin to respond to the gospel, for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. This is changing everything. And so to understand what salvation looks like pre-Jesus uh, for a Gentile who wants to come into uh, a Jewish way of living uh, is a couple things. There, there's, two kind of, there's two parties that really thought this way. You had some more progressive ones and some more conservative ones. And the progressive folks thought this. Well, as long as they keep the seven laws which, was, which were given to Noah... Not, not Moses, to Noah, they were, you know, don't eat certain things, um, please don't have sex with different people, uh, and uh, don't have idols. Th- th- those were kind of the, the basic laws, that if we look back in Genesis, we begin to see these things come out. And then you had more conservative Jews who said, no, they have to be, they, they need to go through the full conversion experience. They need to be circumcised. Uh, they have to obey all of Torah. And so what's happening here is you have this conversation taking place. We need to kind of peel back and say, okay, so what the Pharisees are saying, and please, we have to understand this, these aren't the Pharisees that we made fun of back in, in you know, the flannel graph days, the ones that were really mean and cranky, or were they, you know, any of these movies that we see popping up, which I will just turn that off. We're good. Um, and... But what we have to understand is these Pharisees are people that have now responded to the gospel they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they're but they're living in this tension saying yeah I totally believe this it's real it's good but I'm not ready to give up my Jewishness because that's not part of the deal and so you have this understanding that the Pharisees are saying listen if if a Gentile wants to become a Christian they need to first become Jewish and then they're okay and what Paul and Barnabas and Peter are saying is, no, we, we, we cannot, we can't have them jump through all these religious hoops. And, I, and Peter says this beautiful thing. He says, guys, we haven't been able to hold up these things. But we need to understand this is a big deal within the church. This is a really difficult thing. Um, and this isn't one of those things that's just so simple. But this is also something that we do. In our day. Uh, I I think, um, you know, some of you may have heard this. If you want to be saved, you must stop smoking. We must renounce polygamy or you must be baptized by immersion or give up racial biases or be circumcised. There's all these different things that we have a tendency to add to what we think it must mean to be a Christian. Because this is what's really at stake. This is the big picture of what's going on within the story. What does it mean to be saved? And here is the truth. You can become a Christian exactly where you are. Jesus saves us through His grace. This is the, on a cosmic level of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. What happens is sin, the brokenness in which we, we live in, the relational brokenness, the, 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 the brokenness between our lives and God, our lives, the way that we view ourselves, uh, the way that we view others, and the brokenness that we see all around us in creation, that the resurrection actually begins to heal and repair and redeem and restore those things. And believing in the name of Jesus saves us. It changes us. It makes us new. And that God's grace is much bigger than we imagined. God makes room in his family. And so it's, it's remember, remember that game that you play with, with children. Um, You know, uh, you'd say, you know, how how big is, you know, how big is little Johnny? So big, right? Remember that? Well, we do that a lot, right? We think, and I think we do it in different ways. We think God's grace is this big, but in reality, it's this big. That we think that, you know, God can only do this with these amount of people, but in reality, it's this big. And guys, we, we we see it, and we've seen it in our own lives. It's like the minute we meet Jesus, He ruins our life. It, it, it just turns us upside down. What we thought was up becomes down. What we thought was down becomes up. And our lives just begin to get thrown into complete and utter unbelief and belief. And all these crazy things begin to happen in the midst of our conversion experience. And I love it. Uh, one of my really close friends became a Christian when he was about 20 years old. He was a partier. And this guy loved, he loved parties. That's what he did. That was life. Life was. I work Monday through Friday, so that Friday night through Saturday, I, or through Sunday, I don't remember a thing. That's my goal in life. Well, he meets Jesus, and three months later, he has this conversation with me while he's in the midst of his partying, and he says, "Hey, so I got this really weird thing. I'm feeling really guilty about what I'm doing." He's like, "Well, well what's that? Well, I don't want to feel guilty. Well, what do you think's going on?" He's like, "This is going to sound crazy." I don't think God wants me to continue doing this. Whoa, are you serious? But what I love about that is that God who called him, as the relationship continued to grow, there was this growth of maturity and this growth of saying, how do I step with God? And it was this beautiful picture of maturity beginning to happen. Probably a lot what it was like when Gentiles started becoming to know Christ when they began to see him right so I just and understand Gentile culture is very different than Jewish culture um sexuality is rampant I know not like in America sexuality is not rampant in America right like we're very modest people um right so this is nothing new and so in, in that, there, there's promiscuity, there's all these different things, um, there are feasts and pagan festivals and all these different things that are happening. And so as they're talking about that, that's a main issue within the church. They're saying, what do we do? How do we actually help people begin to connect the dots? How do we help them actually come to relationship with Jesus, but also realize that we want them to be in relationship with the church? Do we help them become Jewish or, or, or what? So please hear, this is a major tension. And so what we understand about these rules, uh, and let me read them one more time, James says this, he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, so stay away from idolatry, from sexual immorality, stop having sex with people that aren't your wife or your spouse or your husband, uh, and from what has been strangled, uh, and from blood. And uh, these, these rules actually are found within uh, the Levitical law, Leviticus 17 and 18. You can find them there. And these were rules that people that came to Israel and wanted to be part of the community but weren't fully Jewish had to abide by. Because it, two things. Number one, if you can sum these two rules up, these four rules into two words, two ideas, it's love God and love others. And the whole idea of these rules, we're saying, how do we help these people fall in love with God? How do we help them understand who God is? But how do we help them be sitting around a table with Jewish brothers and sisters and not having offensive warfare every time they sit to have a meal? So these ideas are really about the understanding that we need to learn how to be community together. And it's really messy, right? Right? Same thing with us. There are moments, and again, a lot of us have had experiences like this. When we came to know Christ, our brokenness was so big that certain things just stopped right away. And other things have taken time to to, to bleed out. If we look at the book of Corinthians, both of them um, understand Corinth is a very pagan city. Sexuality is rampant. And most of what Paul is writing to Corinth is saying, guys, stop having sex. This is not good. You're destroying relationships around you. You're destroying yourself. And he's having all these very, very important conversations about what these things are. And, but to understand, too, that the, these rules aren't just cracked up from nowhere. These are also rules that are deeply invested in, this, in the story of God because what Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James are saying is we don't just want people to just forget our past. We don't want them to just move away from the story because this is God's redemptive story. And what I love about God's redemptive story is it's warts and all. If you've ever read the Old Testament, a lot of times you walk away thinking, what did I just read? Uh, It's scary. Whoa, did God really do that? Yes, it's warts and all, and I appreciate that because we're not, it, no one had a chance to edit the book to make it look really pretty, so all, everyone's really happy about it, but it's saying, are you willing to follow God? Do we see that God's redemptive plan was hatched from the beginning and continues to move forward? And so these laws, these rules that they're encouraging the Gentiles to abide by is saying, this is how we do family together. Uh, have any of you ever been to any kind of um, wedding rehearsal when in-laws meet for the first time. It's like made-for-TV stuff, right? I mean, in a lot, you know, some of you are laughing are like, yeah, we have horror stories. But it's very interesting. Two families trying to figure out, well, you know, I don't want to step on your toes, and I don't want you to step on my toes. How do we do this well? It's the same kind of idea. The church is being, it's, it's expanding. The spirit is causing all this trouble, but the church is saying, how do, we, how do we respond? How do we respond? And so James, he recognizes that a convert to faith it must give up certain practices while the community welcomes all who truly repent as God welcomes them. There are no limits in the community for what, marks out as, for, for what the community marks out as Christian. And so here's what this means for us today. My friends, we are not called to be professors of grace. We are called to be possessors of grace. This idea that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile is the unveiling of God's picture of grace, that it is big and it is beautiful and it is huge. A few weeks ago, Ben Pitts in in a meeting we had, we were talking about a passage of of the disciples when they were fishing and they caught this fish and it says that there was so much fish in their boat that it almost sank. And Ben said, and I love this, Ben goes, that's a picture of God's grace. That it's so big and so overflowing that it's probably going to sink your ship. And I appreciate that because that is the truth of the gospel. That we think God's love and grace is this big. But in reality, it is this big. And it is so much bigger than we can imagine. My friends, what, what, what I'm thinking through and what this means for us today is Jesus plus nothing. We can't add anything for salvation. It's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. Even the best of intentions, if we only meditate more, if we only read our Bibles, if we only pray more, it's placing our faith, our full trust, and our weight in the person of Christ. John 16, 27. I I love this passage. It says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. My friends, that is the simplicity of, And the beauty of salvation, we place our faith in God and it begins to change our lives and our beings. So, Jesus plus nothing. We can't add anything to Jesus for salvation. It's Jesus. It's him alone. However, I want to also warn us that the gospel is like a bomb that goes off and disorients everything. And so some of us when we meet Jesus for the first time in our life, we feel shame and guilt. And, and um, a lot of um, counselors and people uh, in, this, in the psychology world would, would say that that's really bad. But I actually think that when God does it, it leads us to repentance, which brings us back to what Ben said. It's his kindness that draws us into repentance. When we recognize that shame and guilt, what we actually realize that when we repent, it leads us to freedom. And repentance, it, it, <laughs> the repentance isn't the thing that draws you closer to God. It happens as God is drawing you closer to himself. We begin to repent because we begin to see what is actually going on inside. And so that's one thing. So the, the first thing is if we have anything that we've added plus Jesus, we need to repent of that and leave it here. And we need to realize it's Jesus that, makes us, that saves us. It's Jesus that calls us in. Um, we can't add all of these other things. However on the second side we need to stop spending all the time figuring who's in and who's out we need to push we need to push that out of the way so that we learn to be good neighbors and that's what I believe the second half of what Acts 15 is calling us to, to say, how do we be good neighbors? How do we, how do we enter into discipleship? Because if there's no trust and if there's no truth, and there are certain rules that, seem to take, that need to take place around each table, around each family table, and those rules are actually good things. But part of that is we need to stop trying to figure out who's in and who's out, and we need to push to be good neighbors. The church, the early church very much so, um, was accused of having radical hospitality. That means that they wrestled. It was almost like, oh, you let that guy in? Ooh, what are you doing? But the truth is, that's the God. When we think back to Jesus' life, who does he spend time with? Who is he accused of spending time with? It's the people that are on the outside. It's the people that don't belong to the table. I think Luke 5, this beautiful story of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and everyone's getting ticked off about it. But that's the beauty of the gospel because we think it's this big and in reality it's this big. And the truth is, is that actually makes us uncomfortable at times. Amen. So how do we begin to make room for others? One of our church goals for the year is this idea around kingdom mischief. And what does it mean for us to begin to see more kingdom mischief take place? And my friends, I think what that means for us this morning is that how do we begin to open up, but we begin to take risks and see how do we love people well? What does it look like to enter into relationship with people that are just messy? And here's what I know to be true. We are broken. Kent Gerhart preached this yesterday at a at a funeral. He said, "All of us are messed up, but the good news is that according to John 16:27, the Father loves him, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me, and I believe that I came from God. That we are broken, and that we will present ourselves with particular behavior patterns, attitudes, in order to make to make impressions of success, confidence upon others to protect our true inner brokenness. But God is pasting together a family." that looks a lot more like the family from Little Miss Sunshine than it does the Waltons. And so part of us is realizing, fellas we and, and ladies, we are, we are in a van that is half broken down that won't work without God at the wheel and us participating with him. And so two things I want to challenge you. Number one, that if you're adding anything to Jesus, you need to repent, you need to drop, you need to realize it's Jesus that saves you alone. Second thing, you're called to be part of a really messy community. And so, what that means is there are certain things that we have to say, listen, we're, we're, we are going to give certain things up just to be part of this community. Because when it comes to be part of it, when it comes to be with family, there are certain things that we have to learn to lay down. And when I think through the, 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 these rules that, that, that the church sends to the Gentiles, they're a gift. They're rules towards freedom, and they're rules towards seeing a table expand. And I love that we stand here today. I stand here, you sit here as a result of men and women who continue to see the gospel move forward, to move outside of one particular family, the blessing of Abraham, and to see it grow and grow and grow and grow. And with each step of growth, it got messier and messier and messier. But what I love is that we can put our full weight and trust in the fact that the Spirit of God is alive and well, and moving us towards perfection, moving us towards what it means to be a real family of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for this morning. And God, thank you so much for the stories in which we heard and the way that you're at work um, in Sozo and the way that you're at work in, in so many different people's lives around the globe. Lord, I'm thankful that we are part of the blessing that you promised to Abraham thousands of years ago that your grace would would move away from one family and and that a family would be a conduit would be a pipe and not a bucket of your grace lord i pray that you would break our hearts for the gentiles in our world that are far from god that don't even know the story And God, I pray that you would surprise us as we step out in faith in kingdom mischief experiments. And we begin to see your Holy Spirit work and the Spirit drop on people that we never even thought, never even imagined possible. That you would surprise us. Lord, we know it's going to be messy. We know there are going to be seasons and times when we have to make tough decisions about what it means to be be living in community and family together. But Lord, I pray that you would help us all not to run away, but to press in and lean in and continue to trust that it's your spirit at work. In your name we pray. Amen.